The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. So there's a well-known story in Scripture. I'm sure you've all heard it. It's about two houses. Are you familiar with this story about two houses? I'm sure you sang songs at VBS when you were a kid. The, the, the wise man builds his house upon the... And the foolish man builds his house upon the... Right? And the rains came down and the floods came up. I love that song. It was a great song to sing. Uh, so that, that's a, it's, a, it's a powerful metaphor. We're so used to it, so maybe it's lost its power a little bit. But if you turn to Matthew chapter 7, uh, we're going to see that this is actually the final metaphor, the final illustration that Jesus uses in the preaching of the Sermon on the Mount. Now the Sermon on the Mount covers chapter 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. It's a huge discourse. It's a vitally important bit of biblical text. And Jesus wraps up all of his teaching with this this illustration, beginning in chapter 7, verse 24. Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine, the words he just preached, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be, and does not do them rather, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat up against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. I know you're familiar with that passage. It's not hard for us to, to, to kind of live within that metaphorical world. What are the storms of the world? What are the rains and the winds and the, and the floodwaters? I mean, we've lived in a, a crazy chaotic time, right? So we understand the pandemic and wildfires and, and political tensions and inflation and all these sorts of things can form, uh, on one level, the, the storms of life. And if we're not built on the rock of Jesus, if we don't have trust that he is sovereign and in control, it can, it can crush us. And, and so we tend to think about this... Uh, in, in terms of being theistic or non-theistic, right? Theistic or atheistic. Those who, who believe and trust in God, put their feet on the rock. Those who, who have abandoned God, those who are atheists, they don't have that. We, we tend to think in, in these, uh, these broad brushstrokes when we think of this, this metaphor. But, but maybe there's another way to consider it. Maybe it's not just quite so simplistic and black and white. Maybe there's something else that's going on here. I think about the storms of life, the kind that we see in the evening news, the, the broader sense, but what about those storms of life that come, against, come up against those of us in the church? Those that claim Christ, those that want to follow God. I think about heartbreak and betrayal. I think about spiritual doubt. I think about moral failure. I think about disappointment. This isn't just a metaphor about those who are religious and those who are irreligious or those who believe in God and those who reject God. If you think about Jesus' ministry, even at the time that he would have given the sermon, he was within Israel. I mean, this was a highly religious people. They believed. They, they, this was not in the context of a God-rejecting people. They were a religious people. And Jesus gathered with his disciples, with the backdrop of the Roman Empire and ethnic Israel and religious establishment. But as I think about building our house up on the sand and how that might be something that we even, through bad leadership, bad theology, poor understanding. How we might do that in the church? What are some of the ways that we might... Man, I've been thinking about this so much because, you know, I've been in ministry for like 20 years. 
And when I first got in ministry, I was, I was at this church in Wisconsin, and there's a very specific vision for this church that I joined. Not all bad. I'm not trying to throw the whole church under the bus. So, so hear my words here. But it was, uh, it was kind of a grow-at-all-costs culture in that first church I worked at. And so everything that we did was, was, was filtered through that, that desire. How can we be most attractive to the most people? How can we tailor our sermons to be most palatable and attractive and easy for the most people so we can grow big fast? And, and, I, and, I, and I, I drank the Kool-Aid. I got involved in the church growth obsession. Bigger is better. More people under the roof, the better. Didn't matter where their hearts were, but what mattered was we had an, an, an arena filled with people. That's what we wanted. And that was kind of the core value. And I wouldn't have said that out loud because I kind of knew how gross that sounded, but in my heart, that's kind of how we were thinking, and that's kind of how the leadership was moving the church. Not all of us, but that was, a, that was the overall culture. And, uh, you know, and I, was in that, I was in that church for 10 years, and I think we made some good adjustments. I think we morphed the model. I began to see the fallacy of that when I became the senior pastor, and we, we got more word-centered and, and tried to get more focused on making disciples. But one of the horrible things, I'm going to talk to my wife about this, for me, being on social media and being connected with all these people is like, the number of people who have walked away from the faith. It's just, it, it's heartbreaking. Kids, I watched on fire for Jesus, I thought. People I baptized. And then, uh, for whatever reason, they're either living lukewarm or just entirely abandoning the faith. Some have come out outright and just said, I no longer believe. And I know it's not all on me, right? But I look back and I'm like, geez, what was wrong with that model? Was I... Had we created a culture in that church where we are letting people build houses upon the sand of cultural Christianity and we weren't leading people to the authentic Jesus? I think so, on certain levels. And so that's the backdrop here. As I, as I, as I, as I came to, to Heritage nine and a half, ten months ago, one of the things that really excited me about this church was the commitment of the leadership of this church to make disciples. I mean, really make disciples who make disciples, to keep Jesus central, to, to have a huge value for the Word of God, to have a missional focus, these core values, who we were as a church was, was super exciting. Because I look back, and unfortunately, I had put my hand to some unhealthy church cultures in the past. I, I contributed to that. And I think there are people who built their house on the sand, and when a tough doctrine presses up against your preference, a tough teaching of Jesus, people just have chosen to walk away because their house was not built on rock. So I worry about that. And I worry about what happens when we begin to take our eyes off of Jesus and we don't make him the centerpiece of our discipleship. We, we're tempted to elevate self and, and, and elevate ourselves above God, demote God even. We, we look to man and not God. If we get caught in that culture, we, we, we make our faith about ourselves, about what it can do for me. Uh, I'm reminded, as I've been kind of saying to myself for a couple weeks now, there's one high priest and his name is Jesus. There's one who is the head of church, and his name is Jesus Christ. It's not Paul Stevens. It's not any other pastor. Jesus is the head of the church. We are to elevate him, not man. We are to look to him for strength, not self. It's not about me. It's about him. Last week, Pastor Mitch talked about the preeminence of Christ and how he deserves to be number one in our lives. We looked at Luke 14 and this beautiful chapter, on, on, uh, and this challenging chapter on, on the the cost of following Jesus. If you haven't had a chance to listen to Pastor Mitch's sermon, man, I would encourage you to go back and listen to, it's on our YouTube channel, outstanding launch to this sermon series. And so what's, what's, what does Jesus have to say about discipleship? 
what does Jesus have to say? Like, what would you, if Jesus was leading our church, and he is, right? He's the head of the church. He's the only high priest. And if he were to speak into our church and say, hey, you're going to be a disciple-making church, Heritage Christian Fellowship. So here's the things you need to avoid, and here's the things you need to lean into. What, what might he say? I think the Sermon on the Mount gives us some insight into the, the vision of Jesus for discipleship. In fact, that's the name of my sermon, Jesus' vision of discipleship. Turn your Bibles back to chapter 5 of Matthew. We're going to do a high-level flyover of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to look at... Um, this is not a, we're, not, we're, not, we're not uncovering all that can be found in the Sermon on the Mount. There's, this is a, a, a deep, 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 deep well of truth. But we're going we're gonna to make some observations as we look at the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount, how it pertains to discipleship, and maybe some of the wrong ways we tend to think about discipleship. Now remember, when Jesus gave this, he was speaking to, to, to those who were, who were believers, those who, who, had, who, who had expressed desire to be a part of Jesus' kingdom. And if you look back at just even the gospel of Matthew itself, the, the author makes it very clear that Jesus was and is uh, the promised Messiah that, that Israel had long been waiting for. If you go back to the first verse of the first chapter, he is Jesus. He's in the line of David. He is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. David, uh, uh, Matthew has made that very clear. And here now, we're going to see how, how the reign of Christ reaches beyond just the people of Israel. It's a kingdom that has no end. It's for Jew and Gentile alike. And as we gather here today at Heritage Christian Fellowship as the redeemed people of God, we're here to worship, and, and he's our king. We're, 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 we're gathering under the authority of King Jesus, and, and we are a part of his kingdom. We're the people of his kingdom. And the first four chapters of Matthew are kind of this narrative that kind of walk us through the early ministry of Jesus. But by the time we get here to chapter 5, it goes from narrative, which tells us something, to discourse, which teaches us something. Jesus is teaching us something vitally important over these three chapters. It's the Sermon on the Mount. It's the teachings of Jesus. Others have said that the Sermon on the Mount is not the best title for this section of Scripture. Some have called it a discourse on discipleship or a charter for discipleship or the authoritative message of the Messiah. Today I'm calling it Jesus' vision for discipleship. So what does it mean to be a disciple in his kingdom? And what does it mean to not be? What does it not look like for us to be a disciple in his kingdom? Let's look at the Beatitudes. Beginning in chapter 5, verse, verse 1. I'm not going to read the whole Sermon on the Mount, by the way. We're going to hit highlights along the way. I'm not reading three chapters. So I encourage you to read it on your own. Beginning in verse 1, chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. When a rabbi would sit, that was, in that custom, that culture, it was what a rabbi, they would sit and teach. So as Jesus teaches, he's gathering they. They are these men who he had called to follow him, Andrew, Simon, and his brother, uh, and these other disciples who Jesus had recently called in the previous chapter. So he's teaching. There's, certainly there's, un, there's people who haven't agreed to be a part of the kingdom of, 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 of Christ, but he's talking to those who are of his kingdom. This is, a targeted, this is a targeted message to those who are his, both then and now. And by the way, the word beatitudes, it's simply a Latin word that means happy or, or blessed. And so here we go. Here's the beatitudes beginning in verse 2. He opened his mouth and he betaught them and he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, be glad, for your, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted you for the prophets who were before you. When I read that, I've read the Beatitudes a million times in my life. When I read that, when I think of the sorts of things that are valued in our culture today, when I think of the qualities, the virtues that, that you and I might desire just kind of in a knee-jerk kind of way, I don't think of these sorts of characteristics. There's not too many of us that, that, that aspire towards poverty in spirit. There's not too many of us who, who, who look forward to mourning or who, who, who cling to meekness or who hunger and thirst for righteousness or who pursue mercy, uh, mercy or who are pure of heart or, or peacemakers or who invite persecution and insults and people speaking slander against us. I mean, when's the last time you look back in high school and you said, oh man, I always wanted to be that meek kid who was submissive to everybody else. You never said that. You wanted to be the jock or the popular kid. When's the last time he said, you know what's missing from my life? You know, some good old-fashioned grief. I just got to mourn. Got to get my mourn on today. You don't say that in the Christian church. Maybe, maybe you have, but I haven't. Have you ever prayed, oh, oh God, shower me with insults and persecutions and surround me with people who are going to speak falsely about me? But these are, val- these are upheld. These are blessed, Jesus says. And he was the perfect man. He embodied, per- he embodied perfect humanity. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. And he opens his mouth and he teaches his followers, his disciples, these people of the kingdom. He tells them what they are to aspire towards. These aren't just things for Jesus. These aren't just values that are reserved for heaven. These are qualities that are, are for those of us that are in the kingdom today. One day they're going to be perfected in heaven, but these are for us. We know this because when Jesus taught his disciples to pray later on in chapter 6, he says, he taught us to pray by saying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So these, these aren't just heavenly aspirational things. This is for the church. This is for those who are in the kingdom. The Beatitudes are kingdom values. They describe the, the nature of life in, in the kingdom of Jesus. This is his vision of discipleship, these values. What, what Jesus does here is he lays out for us the core values of his kingdom in this upside-down, countercultural, not-of-this-world kingdom. The blessed people of God's kingdom are, are to be poor in spirit, and they're to mourn. They're, they're to be meek and hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're to be merciful, pure of heart, peacemaking. They're going to be insulted, persecuted, and lied about, and all of it is going to result in joyful gladness, he says in verse 12. It's a snapshot of life in the kingdom. As we look to Jesus' vision for discipleship, we have to say, man, his vision of what it means to be a disciple has to be our vision. So here's the first question I want you to ask yourself. Is Jesus' vision of discipleship one of blessed struggle or boastful strength? Is Jesus' vision of discipleship one of blessed struggle or boastful strength? Look at this picture painted by Jesus here. One commentator puts it this way. An old, like, third century or fourth century commentator says, Jesus teaches his disciples to struggle uh, and to be strict in living a virtuous life, for they will be in view of all. 
Do not imagine, he says, that you will be hidden away in some corner far, for you will be most visible. See to it then that you live blamelessly, lest you become a stumbling block for others. He goes on to talk about this, this salt and light aspect of what it means to be a disciple. What causes salt is, 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 is it accents, it, it, it adds flavor, light pierces the darkness. And, and if, if we're just like, the, if the church is just like the world, we're not salty and we're not light, we're just of the world. But these values, these core values of the kingdom, if we embody that as the body of Christ, as disciples of Jesus, that's what enables us to be salt. That's what enables us to be light. To go through these things, to be poor in spirit, to, be, to mourn, to be meek, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to pursue mercy, all these things. That we're, we're, as, as disciples, we're blessed for it because for those of us experiencing what we might des- describe as undesirable circumstances, at the end of the day, the kingdom is ours. We're going to be comforted, it says. We're going to inherit the earth. We're going to be satisfied. We're going to receive mercy. We're going to see God. We're going to be called sons and daughters of God. And we're going to rejoice and be glad. And we're going to be rewarded. This is the upside-down reversal that is the kingdom of heaven. So those living in the kingdom will be blessed in their struggle. Not only blessed, but made also to bless others. And that's when Jesus talks about this salt and light. Look at verses 13 through 16. This is, this is, this is the, the ministry of the church. This is the ministry of disciples here. You're the salt of the earth, Jesus says. These are the, these are the same people he just talked about that are going through all these blessed sufferings. You, church, disciple, you're the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Church, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light, church, let your light shine, disciple, before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When people of, when the unbelieving world sees, sees, sees disciples of Jesus being blessed in their struggle, being given, being given strength in their struggle, being, having, finding strength and weakness, pursuing peacemaking, being countercultural other than the world, that's what causes, that's what enables us to be salty. That's what enables us to be light. We're different. It's, it's alluring. It's attractive. It's beautiful. It's the aroma of Christ in people's nostrils. It's because of the blessed way that we struggle that we are set apart. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. You've heard this. To show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So that's what true disciples are to be salt and light. We're to bless others. We're to shine the light of the gospel in the world. There's an other's focus to this. There's a selflessness that belongs to those who are in the kingdom. Remember, we're here to elevate him, not ourselves. We have one high priest, and his name is Jesus. He's the head of the church. We're to look to him for strength, not self. It's about him. It's not about us. So to the question, is Jesus' vision of discipleship one of blessed struggle or bold strength? Blessed struggle. The answer is blessed struggle. I don't know if we are ready to embrace that as disciples of Jesus. It's hard to embrace struggle. I mean, how many of us can honestly pray what Paul prayed in 2 Corinthians 12? I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, he said, so that Christ's power may rest in me. 
That's why for Christ's sake I delight in weakness, Paul says. I delight insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. I mean, I, I've been in the Christian bubble for 20 years. Sometimes when I sit down and talk to those of you that are working in the real world, I forget what it's like to be in the real world. But I know what it's like to be in the Christian bubble. I've been a pastor for a lot of years. I know that we celebrate bold strength. I know we promote bold strength. Dudes that have bold strength get book deals in the church. But you know what happens when we, when we gravitate towards bold, self-sufficient strength? Is we, uh, we look to ourselves. And you know what happens when we get caught up in the worldly, when we see a leader who embodies bold strength and we line up behind him? That's how, that's, that's, that's how wolves in sheep's clothing seep in and lead many astray. I mean, I think about how if, 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 if we are going to not allow for transparency and authenticity and struggle within the community, if disciples aren't going aren't gonna to walk with this, with this this blessed struggle, honest, vulnerable realness with one another. But if we're going to don the, 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 the boastful strength persona, which is not true, it, it just, it's, it's a cancer to community, isn't it? Like, you can't be a friend with someone who's, who wears a mask. If we're not willing to be vulnerable and to struggle towards Jesus together to experience him manifesting in our lives, giving us his strength. It's the, if, we, if we're going to play that game, that bold strength, I've got it all together, Christian mass game, it's not discipleship. It's not. We are blessed in our struggles to do it as brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus continues in chapter 5, go on verse 17. Jesus says simply, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. He says, I have not come to abolish them, uh, but, but fulfill them. In these verses, Jesus is explaining that he and the kingdom, his coming kingdom, they fulfill the law of Moses. He doesn't do away with the law. The law is perfectly fulfilled in Jesus, which is the key to interpreting the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus goes on and, and he, he, he teaches after making the statement, he, he, he looks at six different commandments. And he offers these sort of antithetical perspectives. You've heard it said, and he quotes some Old Testament text, I, but I tell you, and he kind of, he, he raises the bar. Which leads to the question, is Jesus' vision of discipleship one of given righteousness or gained righteousness? Is Jesus' vision of discipleship one of given righteousness or gained righteousness? Is the righteousness that we have, the holiness that we have as Christians, is that something that, that is given to us, or is that something that we, that we determine and doggedly pursue and, and gain on our own? Jesus says that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. He's talking about the Old Testament, the law being the Pentateuch, the first five books, the prophets being the rest of the Old Testament. God's standards of righteousness were spelled out clearly in the Old Testament. But as we read the Old Testament and we read all these patriarchs who stumbled and failed miserably, we recognize that no one could be obedient to this law. But then as we begin to see Jesus, we begin to recognize that God is less concerned about kind of an outer legalistic adherence to the law. He wants an inward heart obedience. Paul tells us in Romans that all have fallen short of God's standard. I read this week that contrary to external, superficial, and hypothetical righteousness that typified the scribes and Pharisees, the righteousness of God requires, first of all, uh, an internal love. Doesn't, if it doesn't exist in the heart, it doesn't exist at all. 
God is the only one who gives us new hearts. Think of what he said through the prophet Ezekiel. I will give them a new heart and a new spirit I will put within them. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart. Or I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So the perfect law of God, Jesus came to fulfill all of it. He is the embodiment of the law. I read this week that the law was kept perfectly by Christ and all its penalties against God's sinful people were poured out on Christ. Therefore, the law is now manifestly not the path to righteousness. Christ is. The ultimate goal of the law was that we would look to Jesus and not law-keeping, not gained righteousness, but given righteousness. The ultimate goal of the law was that we would look to Christ. It's because of the eventual obedience of Jesus that you and I have the hope of being given righteousness. I think of 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, that, we, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Later on in Romans, Paul talks about that a little bit further. He says, in Romans 3, verses 23 and 24, he says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, yes, but verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So those living in the kingdom live in Christ's righteousness. As I read what Jesus says in these antithetical statements, these next six commandments that he kind of unpacks, this word radical, just like it's radical. He calls his people to radical obedience. He shares these, these, these antithetical statements. He says, you've heard it said, do not murder. I say whoever has anger for his brother has committed murder in his heart. He's making a shift here. Jesus is making a shift from, he's, from the, the rigorous legalistic observance of the law. He's making a shift from the law to the kingdom. And it, it obliterates legalism. Because he has fulfilled the law. And now, Jesus is to his disciples and to us today, he's making a call to heart obedience. He talks about anger. He says, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. In other words, those in the kingdom, they are to radically pursue harmony. You and me, as disciples, disciples are to radically pursue harmony, even with our worst enemy. He talks about lust. He says, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Disciples, those in the kingdom, we are to radically amputate sin. If our eye causes us to sin, this is a metaphor, but Jesus says, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Those things that cause me to stumble again and again and again into sinful behavior, radical amputation. If it's your phone, get rid of your phone. If it's the bottle, get rid of the bottle. Get help. Jesus talks about divorce. He talks about adultery. He says those in the kingdom, disciples are to radically fight for their marriages. He talks about oaths. He says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Disciples are to speak with radical honesty. Radically speaking the truth no matter the circumstances. He talks about retaliation. He says in verse 39, if anyone slaps you in the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Which means a disciple of Christ, uh, uh, those in the kingdom are to respond to offense with radical generosity. Jesus talks about love. He says, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. How many, of you. how many of you prayed for Kate Brown this week? Those in the kingdom are to radically love those who are lost in the world. It's our job. Remember, we are not to elevate ourselves. We're to elevate him. We're to look to him for strength, not ourselves. This is about him. It's not about us. The wrong vision of discipleship tells us that we ought to gain our own righteousness. We ought to construct pyramids. We ought to create a hierarchy within the church. We ought to climb ladders, and there's a pyramid, and some people are at the top, and some people are at the bottom, and if you're not at the top, you're less than. 
Listen, only Jesus is the high priest. Only Jesus is the head of the church. Can you imagine a community of men and women who worship the living God because of his gift of grace, the given righteousness that comes through the gospel? There's no room for spiritual pride. There's no room for hierarchy. So in Jesus' vision of discipleship, is it one of given righteousness or gained righteousness? Clearly, it's one of given righteousness. We, we love people that are gifted. We, we love Christian leaders that are gifted. We, 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 we have a tendency within us as human beings to want someone to tell us where to go and what to do. I, I've often joked with my kids. I say, listen, if you talk with authority, if you walk at a brisk pace, if you furrow your brow and purse your lips, people will just follow you. Because everybody wants an expert to tell them what to do. When I'm struggling with parenting, I want the parenting expert. When I'm struggling with my car, I want the car expert. When I'm struggling with my faith, I want the religious expert. And so what happens is we create a culture where religious experts are, 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 the, are the ones who we see as most gifted. They've got this gained righteousness because of their, their giftedness. Now, oftentimes, as I've been just learning over the last couple of weeks, oftentimes the, the giftedness of, of some, oftentimes the giftedness of, of religious leaders can far outweigh the character. And, and, and we love giftedness, and I've been, I've been in the church culture for like 20 years, and I've seen it happen over and over again. I've watched friends fail out of ministry. I've, I've watched churches blow up, and what happens is we see someone with great gifts. Now, we look at the scriptures, and it tells us what to look for in, a, in an elder, a pastor, leader, and we're like, yeah, 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 but this guy's really gifted. Have you heard him preach? He's dynamic. He's so smart, and so we give this guy a massive platform, and we don't double-check to make sure the character matches the, the, the gifting or the charisma, and it blows up, and we wonder, how does this keep happening? I'll tell you how it keeps happening. Our righteousness is, is a gift. It's not gained. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we've been healed, Peter says. And so Jesus' vision of discipleship is one of blessed struggle. It's one of given righteousness. It's not one of bold strength and gifted, gained righteousness. Chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So here's the, second, here's the third question. Is Jesus' vision of discipleship one of secret humility? Or seeing holiness? Is Jesus' vision of discipleship one of secret humility or seeing holiness? In all of chapter 6, in, in the first part of chapter 7, Jesus is defining what, defining what is true and what is false righteousness. And as I read through these chapters, this word humble just keeps coming to mind. You guys know what humility is. This is not my definition. I think it was Tim Keller or C.S. Lewis or someone said that humility is not thinking less of yourself but thinking of yourself less. And that's this picture, this humility that's being upheld here in chapter 6 and 7. As the text unfolds, Jesus begins in chapter 1 by saying, beware of prideful righteousness. It's not about you. Don't elevate self. Verses 2 through 4, he says, give. When you give, do it in, in humility. Don't sound a trumpet. Don't bring attention to yourself. Disciples give for God's glory alone. They do so in secret as to not be seen because they don't want to make it about them. Verses 5 through 8, he says, when you pray, pray humbly. Don't pray to be seen by others. I mean, there's a time and a place for public prayer, but you do so with a heart that is humble. 
He's calling out those people that want to prop themselves up as spiritual giants so they pray publicly to be, to be appreciated by others. He's like, no, no, no. Don't pray to be seen by others. Instead, pray like this, and he gives us the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He says, if you're going to fast, if you're going to go through a spiritual fast, food or whatever else, don't do it to be seen by others. Don't brag about it. Don't have that martyr complex so that your need to be validated can be legitimized. Disciples serve God for God's glory alone, not their own. He says, if you're going to lay up treasures, do so in heaven. Look at verses 19 through 24. He said, don't amass self-serving wealth on earth. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, Jesus says in verse 21. What a powerful, I mean, that is a, that's a t- most tweetable tweet of all time. Like, for wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How accurate. That just diagnoses so much in us when we read that. If you're a, about accumulating earthly treasure, your heart will be earthbound. He goes on to say in verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other. Either he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So disciples, those in the kingdom, invest in eternity. And they invest in the eternal kingdom of Christ. It goes on in verses 25 through 34 to say, Trust in God's promise of provision. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you, he said. Which means that disciples are to seek God's kingdom, first and foremost, above all things, and trust in his provision. All the lusts of our heart that are just, we illegitimately try to meet with in illegitimate ways. He's like, the, 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 greatest, the, the greatest thirst within you, the greatest hunger within you, if you mine down all your need to be needed, all your need to be loved, all your hunger and thirst for stuff, if you get past all of the deception and the lies and the confusion, and you get to the heart mode of only I can satisfy that. Seek me first. Seek my kingdom first. And all the the hungers and the cravings and the thirst that you think you want are going to be fully and perfectly and infinitely satisfied in me. It talks about judgment in verse 7, or chapter 7. It says, if you're going to judge judge people, do so in humility. Don't point out a speck in someone else's eye when you have a plank or a log in your own eye. Which means the disciples are to pursue holiness in order to serve others. When, I, I get it, I've been married for 22 years. I've known my wife for 28 years. It's really tempting to point out the speck in her eye. And what we, Becky and I have reminded ourselves is when I'm pointing a finger at someone else, I'm pointing three back at myself. And what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, hey, if you want to sharpen your brother and sister in Christ, your husband, your wife, your kids, the best way you can do that is to radically pursue holiness in your own life. The more holy you are, the more intimately connected to Jesus you are, the more the fruits of the Spirit are going to spill out you and you will actually have a positive effect. You will sharpen the people you intend to sharpen. If you want to hurl stones and point fingers, that's not how it's done for disciples. Before you point a finger of condemnation at the lack of the holiness of another, first and foremost, pursue radical holiness in your own life. And he says, if we have to ask God for something, he says in verses 7 through 11 in chapter 7, do so in humility. Disciples seek God and ask for good gifts. He's our father. What father doesn't want to bless their children, he says. And then we get the golden rule in, in verse 12 of chapter 7. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And so acts of holiness done to be seen by others 
are clearly designed to draw attention to self. It's feeding the idol of self. It's bowing to the idol of significance and praise, and that's what motivates us. And so as we look at what is a disciple, is Jesus' vision of discipleship one of secret humility or, or seen holiness? Well, clearly, the answer is secret humility. We are called to be secretly humble. Not about us. We're not to elevate self. When I came here in the valley, you know, it was interesting moving 2,400 miles across the country, and I'd been living in the church culture in the upper Midwest for, you know, 19 years. I'd been in two different churches in a smaller community and in a large city, and I'd seen a lot of church models, healthy and unhealthy, good and bad, and I saw a lot of good, godly, amazing leaders, faithful men and women, and I saw some really ugly stuff, just like we do in the Christian church. When I came out here, I heard a phrase I'd never heard, though, before. I'd been in the church for a lot of years, but I'd never heard the phrase Moses model. And it talked about the Moses model. It's like we're, we're a human leader gathers people around themselves. And there might be some good, godly, amazing men who can do that, who've got the character to do that, who are able just to kind of just be that Moses that, that, where people gather around. And I think that's, if, if, if someone, that's amazing. I see some good, amazing men who, and women who've lived faithfully for 50, 60 years in, in a model like that. But I am not that. I'm not that. I, I, I get it. Uh, but I've learned to reject it. I think I said on my very first sermon here on November 8th of 2020, um, one of my great fears was that, and this has not been a fear that's been realized, by the way, but one of my great fears was that uh, I would be elevated, as if I'm different. I mean, certainly there's more on me as an elder and a pastor and a teacher of the Word. Certainly I'm held accountable to that. But I'm a beggar who's found some bread who just likes to tell other beggars where to find bread. And and I think about this... uh, this thing of seeing holiness. Now, I don't know a heart motive, but I know my heart motive. And I know if men and women want to put me on a pedestal, I don't trust myself, man. I just don't. I don't want to be a Moses where people gather around. I want to be walked arm in arm with other disciples in Christ, pursuing holiness together. And by God's grace, maybe just maybe we can live out this life of secret humility where he receives the glory and we can kind of just preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. I think that's the goal. So what is Jesus' vision of discipleship? It's one of blessed struggle, not bold strength, or boastful strength. It's one of, of given righteousness, not gained gifted righteousness. It's one of secret humility, not seen holiness. Finally, let's look at the very end of the sermon. Look at verses 13 and 14 of chapter 7. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And then he rattles off these, these three other examples of this or that. And so here's the third and, or the fourth and final question when it comes to discipleship. Is Jesus' vision of discipleship one of na- a narrow hard way or a wide easy way? Is it one of a narrow, hard way or a, or a wide, easy way? The rest of his sermon here, this is his conclusion. He's, he's pleading with his people to enter the kingdom. And he offers these pairs. He's like, there's two gates. One that leads to destruction, one that leads to life. Disciples, those who are in the kingdom, they choose the narrow gate. There's two kinds of prophets. There's a prophet that bears bad fruit, and there's a prophet that bears good fruit. Those who are disciples, they sit under the authority of godly leaders who bear good fruit. They live within a community, a biblical community, that bears God-glorifying fruit. Thirdly, there's two kinds of disciples, he says. There's the one that claims to know God, 
and there's the one that truly knows God, verses 21 through 23. His kind of disciples, those in the kingdom, they, they choose to truly know God. And he says there's two kinds of houses, and this is where we started. One built on the sand and the other built on the rock. Those in the kingdom are to build their house on the rock of God's truth. And so this is what it means to be a disciple. And I just think, and there's, again, I live in a Christian bubble. And I know there's just, if, you're, if, you're, if you read Christian literature or you listen to Christian radio, there's just so many voices, there's so many philosophies. Man, when I sit down to write this sermon, I look at this bookshelf in my office, I got, I got a million books in my office, and there's a lot of amazing faithful men and women who are, who are creating amazing, incredible content that, 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 that is accurate to God's word, that, that is gospel-centered, that's super helpful, great conversation partners. But there is so much that's being said about discipleship right now, or what it means to be the church, that is so wrong. I don't want us to be caught in that game. I don't want us to be a church that, that clings to boastful strength or elevates gained gifted righteousness. I don't want to be a church that's all about having people see our holiness and not being holy. I don't want to be a church that's easy to just the wide easy way and just come and go and whatever. I don't want to be a disciple of Jesus. I want us to be a church. I want to be, I want to be, a, I want to be a disciple, and I want us to be a church that, that recognizes that we are blessed in the struggles because we have a God who's overcome those things. And he uses those struggles to refine us and mold us, and there's a day he wipes the tears from our eye and struggle will be no more. I want, to be in that, I want to be that kind of disciple. I want to be in that church. I want to be in a church where we understand struggle so much we sit in the ashes with those who are going through struggle, and we can say, man, I've been there. God is your strength. Let me model that for you. I want us to be the kind of church that... that that recognizes that we have nothing to boast about but Christ himself. That's our only boast, is Jesus and Jesus alone. Certainly there are gifted people. Certainly there are, there are people that have got amazing talents. And, and may our character match our giftedness. And may we give those gifts back to God for his glory, not our own. I want to be that kind of disciple. I want us to be that kind of church. I want us to be a church that doesn't serve with a logo on our shirt and on our hat with a camera in our hand. If the camera happens to capture it, whatever. I don't want us to serve for glory of others. I mean, we, let's not take selfies when we serve our community. Let's just serve. Secret humility. Let's pray for people. Faith. Let's not say we pray. Let's pray. Not to be seen, but to be faithful. I want, I want us to be a church that, that is a bright, shining beacon of light in a dark world, inviting people to the narrow, hard way because it's the good way. It's the right way the way that saves. That's what I want us to be. So is Jesus' vision of discipleship one of a narrow, hard way or a wide, easy way? Well, it's a narrow, hard way. It's worth it. Like Mitch said last week when he was teaching us on the cost of discipleship. Is it hard? Yep. But the benefits, like, ridiculously, lavishly outweigh the cost. It's the right thing to do. We are a gospel-centered body of believers dedicated to making disciples who make disciples. We want to make disciples who have faith in Jesus, who are growing in the likeness of Jesus, this humble, beautiful image of Jesus. We want to be a church that's leading others to follow Jesus. We don't want to elevate self. We want to elevate him. We don't want to look to ourselves for strength. We want to look to him. It's not about us. It's about him. Praise me. Father, I'm so thankful for the opportunity you've given us today of looking at the Sermon on the Mount. God, I'm thankful that Jesus, you said that you did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but you came 
to fulfill them. And so God, help us understand what that means. God, help us understand that we don't come to you with a righteousness of our own, not a gained righteousness, but it's given to us, God. Help us understand that, that even in the midst of, of difficult moments in this life, as we live in a world that is not our own, as we experience the angst of, of the hour, God, help us look to you and experience blessedness in the middle of it. God, help us rejoice and be glad in it because we know there's a day, God, when you wipe those tears. And even when we're in the middle of the sorrow, God, you're using it. You're using the struggles in our life for our good and for your glory. God, help us believe that. And God, when we put our hand to ministry or to, to serving or to loving or to caring for others, God, would you just give us a heart? God, I'm so hard. God, would you just break my heart? Would you just would you rip out of me the desire to be, to be made much of? God, I don't want, I want to be made much of in my, in my flesh, but in my spirit, God, I just want to be a servant of you. God, may we embody that heart as a church. God, help us be a church that in secret humility, God, we just serve you and serve others, that you would receive the glory, that people would encounter you and look to you, not us. We don't want the name Heritage Christian Fellowship to be famous in the Rogue Valley. We want the name Jesus to be famous in the Rogue Valley, God. May we live that. And God, use our church to be a city on a hill, to be a lamp on a lampstand, God, inviting, inviting our neighbors and friends and family members and loved ones and coworkers and classmates to this narrow way. It's hard, but it's beautiful and it's right. And it saves. We love you, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.